0: Hello and welcome to Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting and we focus on craft, process and business and pretty much everything in between. My name is Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London as always. And as always, I'm joined by my fellow acting teachers, coaches, working actors who form this dynamic triumvirate. They are Brian Kasp, who is in Prague. Hello, Brian. Hello, and we also have Andrea Helen, who is based in Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea.
1: Hello, Gary. Hello, Brian.
0: Hello. Now, we've got an exciting episode for you this week as we have a guest interview. And it is my great pleasure to welcome and to introduce actor Ed Spileas. Hi, Ed.
2: <laughs> Hi, Gary. How are you?
0: I'm very well, well, a huge welcome to the podcast and, and thanks very much for taking the time away from your family duties and also house renovations to talk to
2: us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, a privileged position to be here, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, it's, a, it's a nice break from uh, steels and labourers and cups of tea.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just so you know, for those out there, Ed's worked on some major TV and film productions, including Downton Abbey, Wolf Hall. Outlander he's also worked on Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built and Andy Circuses Breathe and he also runs his own uh, film production company which he has had a BAFTA nominated short film which was their first produced piece so I'm really looking forward, along with all the other guys, uh, to get into all of this stuff. Um, but before we do, let's have our usual quick catch up with what we've been up to since we last spoke, work-wise or regarding any of our creative endeavors. So, um, Brian, what have you been up to since we last spoke? I did an interesting thing. So I I went to Ikea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I didn't, think it, I didn't think that was, that was the laugh line, but uh, so I went to Ikea and I bought a clothes rack on wheels and I put my blanket over the rack with the wheels on it and it was a wonderful sound buffer and so <laughs> I was working on that I was working on my my mini ad hoc uh, bespoke voiceover studio this week so that's that's what I was up to <laughs> wow I had a really good time doing some some really fun animated characters so hopefully I will be able to say in a few weeks or a month yeah I did that job but right now it's just the audition
0: fantastic
2: Brian, what made you think of um, getting to Ikea as the, as the as the remedy for the sound booth? I'm just, how did that come? I mean, that's creativity in a, in a nutshell, isn't it? How did that come about?
3: Well, I had done a few where I was holding it behind me. Right. But I figured, oh, that I should build something for it. And then I just, for some reason, thought about the mobile wardrobe hanging racks. And I thought, oh, I, I should probably get one of those. That's probably cheaper and easier than actually building something. And so I, I just put that behind me and I have my little foam ball that sits around my microphone and it kind of cuts out all the ambient sound in the room and, and gives a nice tone to
0: it. Very good. Yeah. It sounds like you're pretty set up. And incidentally, I think you're the first ever person I've heard in a sentence say, <laughs> I've been doing something interesting and Ikea in the same time <laughs> you, you don't
3: know how boring my life is. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I, I live for the small, <laughs> the small victories. Yeah, the devil is in the detail.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Andrea, what have you been up to over there on that lovely island of Mallorca?
1: Well, I went to Ikea too, but I did not get anything for my, for my home sound booth. So that was a bore. Um, but I did teach another class and I'm working on some plans to teach some children's classes and teen classes actually. So that's, that's got me all excited. I'm trying to think outside of my own box. I've taught children before and I love working with kids. Um, but I'm Rethinking a strategy a little bit in hopes that it might be successful, and uh, and I'm sort of excited to get that going. So I've been, I've been plugging away on those ideas.
0: Great stuff. Keeping going with the mm. teaching and building stuff up. That's me. Fantastic.
1: What about you, Gary?
0: Myself, yeah. I've basically spent this week getting my autumn courses underway kicking off with a new scene study intensive. And um, the first class was all about breaking down a scene, which we have done here, but also really concentrating on getting the scene down to its core action, being very mm-hmm. specific, very singular about that. And then also uh, kicking off a casting technique intensive. So busy mm-hmm. with, you know, getting the courses for autumn between now and Christmas um, in place and started. And those are all online, Gary? Okay? Yeah, those are all online. I am now, I've decided that it's too soon for us here in in, in London to get back in the studio and I'm going to be online until the new year now. It's probably too soon for us in Prague too, but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, well, you, you just don't, you just roll with it. You're a rebel. You, you You're an outlier. <laughs> I don't know. Or just stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, it's slightly different there, I think. I think because of just numbers and-, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what about you, Ed? Let's get
3: off of this uh, pandemic thing. What about you? How? What have you been up to?
2: Uh, Creatively, I well Gary knows very well. I've been on the phone to Gary most days, going, oh, Gary, I've got another. This is a blinder. This is a, this is a lead role a, in a quality series. We've got to go through it. I need you now. When can you fit me in? When, we, when can we go through something? Because uh, mm. I'm, I'm, I don't know if everybody's. Whether Gary and I obviously spend a, a lot of time working together. Sort of everything, <laughs> every role I ever get now, I we I, I take it from the from the ground up with Gary. Um, it's a thoroughly That's enjoyable process most of the time, mm. until he's berating me. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there's been a couple of there's been, there's been a couple of really good um, opportunities, sort of tapes wise, self tape wise, which has been reassuring. As it was not just for me, but for large parts of the industry. You know, it's been
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, a tough a tough few months. Uh, I know you didn't want to get back onto the topic of pandemics, but you know, we we can't ignore the fact that our industry has been on its knees theater still very much so but there are opportunities are coming back um i also more or less just signed off on doing a supportive role in a, in a film in a netflix film that's going to be shooting in iceland it's sort of early 20th century it's an expedition uh which is right up my street yeah. any sense of adventure yeah so uh, i've been doing bits and pieces but the auditions are coming yeah. back in which is good
0: yeah. Excellent. So, you know, there's many ways to to start this and jump in and I don't know if you guys uh have any questions. I do actually. I so right. I want to
3: just build on what you just said, Ed. So, I, mm-hmm. so, you know, Gary on this podcast, you know, this is our I don't know how many. We're in the 20s now of what we've done for the podcast. But Gary talks a good game about what he likes to do <laughs> with students, but we've never actually had one of his actual students on the podcast to really say what it's like from the student's perspective so before we get into your history or how you you know came up I just wanted to hear like the dirt so when you (laughs) say like okay I call up Gary and we start to work on a scene so what is it that you're that you're looking to him to get what are you getting from him
0: how does how is how does it work from your perspective can I just say that he's not a student he's a
2: client Okay. <laughs> That's not what you tell me when we go through things together, Garrett. You will listen. You will abide. You will obey. out.
4: <laughs>
2: this
3: episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now, look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors. You can get career advice from industry professionals and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code Vagabond25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show.
2: I mean, I I guess it's possibly worth going slightly further back, Brian, if that's all right, and actually looking at it more from a point of view of going, hang on, there was a point in my career where things were, you know, were going relatively smoothly. However, I was kind of questioned, something. I always felt that there was a part of me that wasn't fulfilled enough as as an actor. I have an element of having a chip on my shoulder because I never went to drama school because I had this very peculiar start to the industry. And actually, I met Gary years and years and years ago, I don't want to make him sound too old, or myself, uh, at the Actors' Temple, and he was doing uh, a one-week introductory course into Meisner. And I'd been down there and done a couple of days previously with one of the other uh, teachers. I went to this week with Gary, and it made such a sounds ridiculous. But I made such a mark on me, although mm. well, I, I, I was in a position where I couldn't keep coming back. But it was the first time, actually, and I'd been in the industry sort of two or three years, where I actually felt like something real was happening <laughs> with with mm-hmm. with what Gary was introducing me to. And I thought, well, this guy, mm-hmm. this, this is great. Um, and it was raw, but it was detailed, and it it started to give me a little bit of a path.
0: Let me just interrupt there, but you got to point out that you were just seventeen then, right?
2: A bit older. That's the point. I've been in the industry for a couple of years. Aragon had been done. It was after a few trials and tribulations. And I was living in Doho and I was told go down to the Actors Temple and check it out. And that's when I met you. And, and I was blown away by the process. I had a, I had a, a great week. And I don't know if it was fear or nerves or financial things. I don't know why I didn't keep pursuing it and actually do the 12-week intensive at that time. I, maybe in hindsight, I should have done. But anyway, things went on. And then Gary and I, we had this the funny period did we go where we met we bumped into each other twice in was it like two weeks once was at this big gala event where you were promoting something that you had been putting together with an old colleague at, at the um was at the national no. wasn't it and we bumped into i was like blimey gary i haven't seen you in years And we got talking and i was also talking because sitting next to another client of yours at a table and she was saying how she'd been working with you in a very similar way and i was like oh, God, of course of course i remember gary anyway so and then we bumped into each other, was it two weeks later on Upper Street? And I was like, okay, right, Gary, we need to call each other up because I- I'm not a particularly superstitious or spiritual person or anything like that. But I thought if I, I bumped into him twice now, somebody else has spoken about him, I need to give Gary a call. And I think pretty much the following week, I was in, in with Gary going through something, just looking at a scene, looking at things. And very quickly, I realized that, I wanted to continue that and and I realized that Gary was opening my eyes up to a way of looking and thinking that I hadn't really thought about before and I was a good decade (laughs) into my career at this point. Uh, Maybe not quite as much as that, but I feel that uh, what I love about working with Gary and actually, again, whether it's the drama school thing or not, he he gives me a very clear foundation about how to approach things. It's just this this innate focus and discipline I'm, I'm a big sports fan and uh, I mentioned this to Gary the other day and I, I feel that a lot of the sort of sports men and women that I admire, they often work with great coaches for their whole careers not just within their clubs or teams or whatever even if mm-hmm. they're personal sport, individual sports and they work with these people because it's important because these acting is a muscle like physical sports that you're using certain muscles like musicians they they don't just pick up the guitar learn to play and forget about it you've got to be constantly working and and rethinking reimagining and i think you need somebody else in your life to help you with that for me mm-hmm. i do and and, and that person mm-hmm. is gary and he's been hugely influential and, and helpful over the last few years. And it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable process. It's great because it is a very solitary existence as an actor. So actually having mm-hmm. someone who is a sounding board who will completely reimagine what you may be thinking or throw something out at you. And it's you know and it's never it's not stirred or but it's just questions and it's it's giving you a new way of thinking about it that you may never be privy to on your own. And some actors mm-hmm. have an innate talent to do that on their own. I like having that relationship with someone where I can go through it and feel like there's progress being made and someone's in the room seeing me make that progress. Um, And uh, I just, yeah, I thoroughly enjoy the process with Gary, so.
0: Yeah, just to pick up on that, I think knowing, you know, a a lot of your history, you were very young without professional training, if you like, or classical Mm. training. Like you say, you hadn't gone to drama school and yet you were plunged in Mm-hmm. to a huge blockbuster, Eragon. Mm. And for those of you who maybe recognize the name, um, it starred John Malkovich, Rachel Weiss, Jeremy Irons, Robert Carlyle, amongst many others. And how old were you when you did that? 17, when it started. Yeah, uh, you were 17 when you did that. So, you know, regardless of training or not, that's bloody young. Mm-hmm. So off the back of that, you got quite discombobulated by the whole experience to put it politely hmm. and things didn't seem for a 17 year old didn't quite go where they wanted to go. And I think that's a precursor to the reason why you wanted to then hunt out, um, a deeper way of working, um, because you've always worked. And even after Aragon, you have a, you know, you, you went on a, a number of years of sort of low budget and independent films and TV but can you say a little bit about how the effect of Aragon, which would probably be a dream for most actors, particularly at that age, how that affected you in taking the decisions you made after that?
2: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I have very fond memories of Aragon. It was. The beginning, the launchpad of my career, and in many ways, I probably wouldn't be sat here now in this position talking without having been there. You know, I think it was a hugely important point in my life. However, I was very young and I was already, you know, I was taken out of school, a school where I was already, you know, I wouldn't say a Jack the Lad, but I had a, a tendency to get myself into a little bit of trouble and I was suddenly thrust into this very adult world. In Eastern Europe, with you know a film crew, and we all know what film crews can be like. And it was, <laughs> you know, it was it was it was an it was an eye opener. It was a baptism of a fire. It was it was brilliant. I was shown all these amazing skill. They worked with some incredible people, but you know the film didn't quite land in the way it maybe could have done. Mm-hmm. And I felt that actually on the back of it, I was I feel like I was cast aside a little bit, and that happens like that. And maybe there was I have to go back and question elements of. How I approached the work back then, but yeah, you know, I was a kid, so I think I'm allowed a little bit of uh, leeway there. However, it definitely left some mental scars, and it left me questioning my own ability, and left me low on confidence in in my ability and and, mm-hmm. and belief. Mm-hmm. Which is f- fine, and and I think from that point, I was then searching for a way to improve. I always I had a I had a chip on my shoulder about it uh i talk about this at length with my girlfriend now i said well maybe you know looking back i should have after gone jumped into drama school for three years you know just but then you you can't look back in regrets and shoulda woulda coulda you can't live like that so but it's you, you you do question and i felt because on the back of that i was i was always thirsty for knowledge I, you know i'm i'm a big believer in learning day by day if you can always always looking to learn and improve and i think especially in these sort of creative industries you know it's not a case of just feeling you're you've achieved something and that's it and and it's also not a case of having something maybe not work out and that be the end of the line mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i'm a believer in fighting for what you believe in and then fighting for your own your own sort of self-worth and i felt that i had a lot more to offer and to give i just needed maybe a bit of guidance in order to show that and actually rather than focusing on what the the lifestyle the erragon gave me a taste of and potentially could have given me more of, which would have been the sort of high-flying, jet-setting lifestyle. Actually, I was looking for something deeper, deeper from mm-hmm. a creative point, point of view.
0: Put into context, Ed, The Aragorn was supposed to be, correct me if I'm wrong, the kind mm-hmm. of Harry Potter of its day with this big mm-hmm. franchise behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it didn't quite really happen. So you can imagine a 17-year-old thrust yeah. into this, the limelight, also without any sort of... Uh, professional grounding in terms of their craft, mm-hmm. and it's going to spin you out, isn't mm-hmm. it? And yeah, it can, yeah. if people make promises, or at least you know, it's no one's fault. It's just you know, it's their business, and it just didn't go that way. But you know, it, 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 that is a high, and then there must have been a low after that.
2: Yeah, huge lows, huge lows. There was pressures from my family. There was all sorts of things that were going on in my life, um, on and off the pitch, I suppose. That yeah, I, I hit a huge low and it oh. took me years to recover i was you know working after that i just i, I just to try and find any discipline i was just ill disciplined because yeah. i didn't understand i didn't have yeah. it you know a lot of actors in the uk in particular you know they come out of drama school and they might go and do a bit of Fringe theatre, they might go and get a, a, a small part in doctors. They might go and do a couple of episodes here and there. They might go and be lucky enough to get a play at the National. Then they might step up and do a couple of couple of episodes on a primetime ITV show. Then they might get a lead in something. That just and is a is a gradual progression that I think is common in in the UK. But I didn't have that. So after Eragon, I was just I, I came I became straight away a jobbing actor, uh, which is completely fine, completely normal. But I didn't know how to handle that. And I didn't know what was expected of me, and I took a mental battery, <laughs> Really, um, it took me many years. It took me a good five, six years until I, I sort of got to the point of having any confidence. And I'd even say it's taken me working with someone like Gary. It's taken me working on craft and and trying to read and educate myself and look at you know what really matters as an actor, which isn't mm-hmm. all the all the all the things that are the, the, the trappings that come with it. It's about Understanding your work and appreciating it and 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 you know falling in love with it again, you know the reason why I wanted to act from a young age wasn't because I had any pipe dreams of being on a plane flying around the world. It was because I wanted to act and I wanted to tell stories and be other people when I was really young it's because I just wanted to pretend to be someone else, whether it be escapism, who knows, but you know that's why a lot of us get into it.
1: It's maybe the mother in me, but I'm kind of saying, where were the adults, and how were they guiding you? Were you given an onset coach? Were you spending extra time in, in any kind of rehearsals in the film? And then, in that period following, you, the adults who were involved in your management was was there um, was there any sort of game plan to really support you in those needs?
2: So I was given a coach on the set of Aragon who I actually revisited actually a few years ago before I started working with Gary, uh, a lady called Mel Churcher, who was, who was a brilliant acting coach. And I think for the first half of the shoot, I really in, enjoyed working with her and I felt I was learning a lot from her, but I think I got big headed very quickly. you know. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're, everyone is blowing smoke up your backside and, and telling you wonderful things every day from every direction, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you believe the hype very quickly when you're 17 and mm-hmm. I wasn't there it's, it's not like my family were there the whole time I was mm-hmm. at a, it was at a, an age where legally I didn't have to have a chaperone which looking back on it is ludicrous you know I was 17 I was technically if I hadn't been there I'd have been at school doing my a-levels so why should it be any different but I think there was a, a legal reason they got out of having to do that so no one was expected to be with me the whole time I think in hindsight that would have worked differently. Um, but there was there was there was no time for rehearsals i was in
4: mm-hmm. i was
2: learning as i went i was in every shot yeah it was every shot and you're doing and it's not just shots with actors like half the film is with a tennis ball pretending it's a dragon right. sat there right so, so yeah. it, you know you're learning you know the, the, the one part of the industry that actors possibly dislike the most <laughs> Screen, screen mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was doing and I was doing it every day for 6 months oh. um so but look also in hindsight yeah you should I should play to my imagination more and I should have you know that's it's a gift mm-hmm. but there were so many other distractions and so many other voices I felt mm-hmm. getting in the way and I think actually when I did overstep the line with with behavior I was never rude to people on set I never and nothing like that it was more just after hours, I would be doing all the very cliched things of going out drinking and all that sort of thing at a very young age, tender age. no one really stepped in, not mm-hmm. really not one. Re- no one really said like right. having a morsel, a morsel of producing experience mm-hmm. i would I, I would i would i would put. <laughs> I'd, I'd put curfew, You know, we're looking in a world of curfews at the moment. I'd put a curfew on a seventeen-year-old kid. I'd be like, "No, you're not going anywhere." If, if we're not having a yeah. chaperone, your you're not going anywhere. <laughs> it's quite an easy. I mean, it's an easy solution, but that never happens mm-hmm. anyway. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. So. You know, one Ooh. of the things that I, that I like in the in the work that I, that I see from you, I feel like there is this emotional vulnerability that you that you bring to it. You know how you can see when a performer is enjoying. The work, and and I feel like I see that in you, and I see a willingness to explore the depths of something and to be vulnerable. And so, I would say, from from what you're speaking of, uh, from these early experiences, it looks to me that you've made a really lovely journey of going deeper and exploring with an open heart.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's about having an open heart. I think that's a really interesting mm-hmm. point for for any actor to think about. I think you have to be going mm-hmm. and be an open book. I'd be up mm-hmm. for exploring, and um, and and I think it took me a, again. I, I know I've said this already, but it took me a long time to feel that joy, and it's a confidence thing, and you need it's an mm-hmm. element of trusting yourself. And it, I think that's why working with other people is is a is a great tool because you can, if you're not naturally believing in your own ability, maybe someone else can bring it out of you a little bit, and and mm-hmm. that's that's a, you no, know, it's a great collaboration to have with someone. I am up for being as vulnerable as possible. I, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by the idea of transformation in in, in, in acting i 'm fascinated by the idea of laying it all out, but also doing it in as subtle way as possible you know let's not it doesn't always have to be big i just i'm fascinated by the whole thing really every every aspect of the process
0: you know not to not to dwell on that experience and to get into some of the sort of uh more interesting stuff and the actors you've worked with and directors you've worked with and and, and the gossip we can get into um <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm really interested in I don't care about your process anymore you know um, that's not true you know that um I'm being facetious but having a look at your INDB and having said what you said where after Aragorn there was a few years in the wilderness even though you were working but you're talking about you know Personally, internally, in, t- in your relationship with the work, um, mm. and if I look at the credits on your IMDb, I seem to be able to. Now you've said that, maybe chart a bit of a journey. Sort of after Aragorn, you did. You continued to work, and you did a number of independent movies, and and sort of TV. If you don't mind me saying, not on the major channels, right? You know, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, no. And, yeah. And then that lasted for about five or six years until you got Mm. um, Downton Abbey. Is Mm. that right? Is it kind of Downton Abbey started to kind of with a watershed moment where you started to leave all that behind maybe? Or because from Downton Abbey onwards, your work is on major productions.
2: I would say that on paper, Downton Abbey would feel like some significant moment. And I think it definitely is. I would perhaps. preface it by saying there was a couple of jobs slightly before which maybe again on paper would seem like low budget independent films but actually there was a there was a hint of confidence coming back and it was me definitely taking a bigger interest in craft again i think this is and this is post me coming for the first time i ever came to the Actors temple and i had done a little bit of work with a couple of other people and i was i was definitely uh, invigorated by the idea of craft i hadn't i hadn't worked out quite what it was i was trying to do in my approach it was definitely a mismatch but i did a couple of low budget films and they were lonely place to die and uh love bite and they did i did them i think on one year one a year later it wasn't working a lot but those were two moments for me where actually i sort of felt a natural ignition i suppose in in the fact that i felt i felt awake to what i was able to do it was it was not fully formed it still isn't fully formed i don't believe but i feel that there was something in that that allowed me to grasp onto some confidence and yeah i think that then led into getting auditions for things like Downton. And mm. Downton Abbey, y- yes, was a was a big moment for me in many ways. I always say it's a huge moment for me personally, because it's where I met my girlfriend and mother of my children and it was a you know hugely it was actually a very special time working on that show. The the character himself he wasn't at the forefront. You know, when you're downstairs and Julian Fellows is the writer, he his big influence and big emphasis is on the upstairs. That's the world he, he knows very well. Uh, and the downstairs characters, quite often you you bridge the gap between upstairs and downstairs, but you're not you're not always uh, front and center. So you're which is fine. You're part of an ensemble, part of the process. And actually there I had to I had to learn how to to be a part of an ensemble and learn how to to mm-hmm. be a part of a big scene, maybe not having to say a great deal all the time but learning how to be present learning how to be on the ball learning how to respond to others whether it be very subtle looks or whether it be just learning how to play a little bit and what was great about being in the downstairs was that it was like a cauldron it was this frenetic energy it was constantly moving you know we had Mm -hmm. some wonderful actors down there uh, like Siobhan Finner and Phyllis Logan Brendan Coyle Jim Carter you know like a real Mm -hmm. plethora of British acting talent and we'd sit around the breakfast table, dining table. This was our, our our table for the servants. And the things that were bouncing around in between takes was, was just brilliant fun. Everyone was just mm-hmm. having, there was a real rapport down there. And it was a great place to watch and learn, um, a really enriching uh, process. And then I'd have to flip upstairs where I'd be not I'm not saying a great deal at all, but I'd be having to watch, and you'd be watching Maggie Smith and Paul Giamatti, and, uh, Hugh Bonneville, all these people, and they'd be playing with each other. And you know, Maggie Smith was head and shoulders above the rest. <laughs> there's just there's just something about every little nuanced look she does. There's <laughs> uh, just there's no getting away from it. She just she just every every time and every thought that like every take would be different, but she was always working on improving it. Mm. She, it wasn't. She didn't. She was never fully satisfied with with what she'd done and not in a not in a sort of negative way but she you could always tell that she was wanting to go again to improve and i think that's commendable for someone of her vintage to just Mm -hmm. still have that desire and heart and as we were mentioning earlier on andrea that that desire to explore and open yourself Mm -hmm. and she has that in abundance so i used to Mm -hmm. spend a lot of my time just watching watching her
1: her line, what is a weekend? <laughs> Just, I don't know. I I carry that with me so fondly.
2: It's... And sometimes you wonder with, with someone like her, whether it's the writing being as on point as it was. And I think mm-hmm. it was. I think Julian Fellows wrote very well for that show. I do. Mm-hmm. But I wonder that those lines in the hands of someone else, whether they yes. would have had the same impact. I, I no. doubt it. You know, There's no. something about so. her, yes. you know, that ability to to make something so simple seem so interesting and so, 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 you know, and she could put a thousand emotions into one very simple line. I mean, that is, she's she's a wonderfully skilled actor.
1: Yes.
0: And, you know, you did a lot of interesting stuff from then. And I'm just wondering whether that was, Conscious or was luck the work that came along? Did you change your agent? Was it a decision to not be put up for low budget movies? I mean that because there is a definite transition from there onwards where you just started to do major production.
2: Too long, maybe a couple of years before Downton, I did have a representation shift. And I think that was part of it. I think I felt that moving forward, I, I needed to be a part of a team that we all were on the same page. And yeah, from Downton and life after Downton, um, yes, I feel that on the whole, it has been a conscious effort. Of course, there's elements of luck. And there's been a few big things that I've missed out on along the way that would have been maybe another another turn. But I feel on the whole, like, yes, I do do my best these days to be... Uh, try and maintain some integrity but it's it's not always easy a the world we live in but also b i like acting i want to mm-hmm. be out there acting um so sometimes there comes a point where you go well i haven't done anything for a little while let's let's go and try something out this is an opportunity you know mm-hmm. I've, I've read I, I, I don't know if it was um i was listening to something with mark strong recently uh, he was talking mm-hmm. on a podcast and he was saying about if you can find, I think Michael Caine's talked about this before as well. If you can, if there's five things you look for at a job, and if it well, one of them's the director, one of them's mm-hmm. the part, one of them's the script, one of mm-hmm. them's location, one of them's money, and if you can tick you know, three out of five of those things, then you're doing pretty well. And I think that's a good benchmark because, you, of course, I would love to be getting all those those dream roles that you know like I, I I crave, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's another cliche. I'm so sorry, but along along this journey, it is about it's about doing some good work.
0: Well, it, it's probably to do with you know you do a big production and then different people take notice of you.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that you know on the back of Downton, I actually left Downton Abbey because I was basically given a chance for a, a screen test for the Star Wars reboot. Obviously, I had to audition and I met J.J. Abrams and all these things were going on and it was it was a very exciting time. But then it didn't work out in a completely different direction, um, and I think that that opportunity wouldn't have come without Downton. Downton, again, was a huge launchpad. It was it was so well-regarded globally, but in particular in the States, um, it was held mm-hmm. in such high regard mm-hmm. that it, of course, it opened all sorts of doors. Um, uh, and and, it's, and it still does. I mean, in some I, having spoken to the producers of Outlander before, probably part of the reason for me being cast in that was because of Downton. So, you know, that was mm-hmm. like three years, four years, no, even longer, but four years after I left, that came about so Mm -hmm. yes i think the downton card has definitely been hugely beneficial and certainly it puts you in the the eye of other people in the room but of course you've then got to go in the room and and take it to the next level and that's where the, the constantly wanting to improve and learn comes because i think the mistake would be to to do downton and have something like that under your belt and then just sit back on it and, you know, I'm not kidding myself, I'm not, you know, I wasn't, as I say, I wasn't front and center in it, but it was a big opportunity. And I feel that on the back of it, I had to try and give everything I can to apply myself to jobs going forward. And I think the minute you become static and stationary, that's when you will fall back again. And I think because of going all the way back, because of what happened to me right at the beginning, I have this innate desire to prove myself in some way and not to want to go back there i don't want to regress okay i don't mind a few sidesteps here and there but i feel that there's a, there's a burning desire to to want more to improve to better the craft because so we're always going to be learning and I, and I feel that from mistakes that i've made in the past i don't want to make them again you know
0: so we, we've done podcasts on mindset and dealing with rejection so hmm. how do you deal with the star wars rejection please tell me that you got blind drunk <laughs> passed out
1: (laughs) (laughs) because that's what we recommended in our podcast get blind drunk
2: (laughs) Uh, well i just uh, yeah i was pretty gutted i'm not gonna lie i was pretty gutted about not getting star wars i was because at at one point how close did you get it got to the point where i had a handwritten letter from jj abrams delivered to my door saying i'm so sorry that we didn't go I really, really liked meeting you. I really, really liked you for the role. We've just decided to go in a different direction. Oh. Um, and I thought, well, that was very nice of him to handwrite me a letter. <laughs> 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 um, no, but I, in all honesty, it, it is. It's, quite, it's not. It's, yeah, you didn't have to do that. I've, been, I've missed out on many a your job, and I will miss out on many more. And I, for the ones I've missed out on, he's the only one who's ever written me a handwritten letter. So oh. uh, I think that's, that shows a, a wonderful a character in him um but yeah i was it was it was pretty gutting i did go on and have quite a busy year that year anyway i did quite a few different little things awful being one of them uh i went off and did a little indie film uh in berlin called remainder so i had quite a, a fun year creatively in fact i think that year i did the most jobs i've ever done in a year but yeah it took me it took me a while it took me a while to. i, I mean i didn't go and see the film at the cinema I'll put it that way <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: I, I was going to ask this from from kind of the other perspective which is that i'm assuming that when you went to audition for Downton Abbey, it was already Downton Abbey with capital D and a capital A. And you kind of knew what you were up for, much like you would know going up for Star Wars, what you would mm. be up for. And you know part of what we talk about in terms of mindset or in terms of dealing with rejection is kind of putting your head down and doing the work, which I'm sure that you're talking about with Gary. That's something that you guys work on of just focusing on getting the audition piece as much of your interpretation and and as and as truthful to your interpretation as you as you can and then going in and just doing it. Mm. But I just wanted to know cuz it's one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by that that 5 minutes in that final network test where if you book it it's going to change your life and if you and if you don't it's going to be maybe not devastating but it's you know it like you said it's going to sting. So mm. how much so so how do you feel going into these auditions for jobs that have the potential to change your life? And is it something that you take into consideration? Is it something that you mostly just say, I'm just going to put my head down and focus on the work?
2: I feel that it varies. It varies from situation to situation based on how much you want the role, based on the, the stakes of the role and, and, and whether it is a, a, a potential game changer or not. But I have definitely, in fact, more recently than ever. I, I don't ask my agents for feedback anymore. For example, uh, mm-hmm. I used to be really bad at being at, at knowing the meeting had gone well or not knowing, and or then finding out a little bit. Like you're down to the last two. I used to be terrible at going. Any news? Any news? You know, and I used to try and use all sorts of excuses, like oh, I've got a holiday coming up. I need to know is this job going to happen or not? You know, and I kind of mm-hmm. just try and get an answer that you know, if they're going to want you, they're going to want you. But it's taken fourteen, fifteen years to get to a point where I can. I'm trying to just. Put everything i can into those 5 10 15 minutes you're in the room or these days on the self-tape right. and knowing that i've left no stone unturned like i've done the work i've done the work thoroughly and i've given my best shot i feel that of course stakes can be very high and because we've all got rent to find, mortgages to pay. And there's all the, the existential issues that come into our life because at the end of the day, craft or no craft, it is, it is still a living we're trying to make at the end of the day. So, of course, all the other issues fold in, but I'm, I've been working very hard personally trying to ignore all that. And actually, again, listening to what some people have said that I, I greatly admire and also, again, talking with Gary and other people that I, I greatly admire, that you know, try and see those huge opportunities as a performance in themselves.
4: Mm -hmm. and
2: see them as your moment to to shine Mm -hmm. and and then that is your performance that's your moment and if it's five minutes and you're pleased with it what you don't want to do is it's like (sighs) using the analogy of sport again you want to come off the pitch going i should have done that i should have done a bit more of that no it's not about being it's not being about overconfident or conceited it's just going right i've given everything i can there i did the work the work came through and park it of course it's not always easy and of course your mind still dwells on on the fact of oh is, is that going to be mine but I, i'm personally trying to work very hard to avoid that and there's other things you could do you know there's other ways of switching your attention that we've all got mm-hmm. other other interests so for me it's very quickly i try and do some sort of exercise after a big meeting i'll go i'll go for a run or i'll, I'll, I'll try to play football or i'll get out with the dog or try and read something try and get into something else creative as quick as i can mm-hmm. i think it's one of the the blessings of the current situation is whilst everything's going on, you know the, the people are ripping my house apart. There's children at home all the time, so quite often these big tapes I'm going up for, I haven't got time to, to dwell on them. Um, yeah, but I think it's, you've got it's life going on.
3: <laughs> yeah, like, I'm going to live my life. Yeah, uh, call me
2: if you want. So you're pretty much. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean it's any less painful if it doesn't go your way, but I think you. Could, I've got a lot better just moving on quickly. Mm, you invest, yeah. in the, invest in the work, invest in the process of, of doing the best you can. But after that, just just leave it alone. It wasn't yours yet. So, you know, it's not yours until you got it. And just just be grateful for the fact you were in that position. Because also, as my agents keep saying to me, you know, it's like if you keep being in these sort of positions and they say it to other people, you know, work breeds work. And if you're in the room and if you're getting in there and the opportunities are coming, they're going to keep coming. If, as long as you keep doing good work, something's going to land. It might. Who knows what scale it's going to be on? Who knows if it's going to be the dream ticket? But something will land if you keep doing good work and you keep working away and you keep improving. Then it's, of course, you know, it's it's the sort of averages. It's going to, you know, it will happen at some point.
1: Speaking of preparing for auditions, you've done a number of period pieces and adventure pieces, and and then really modern stories. What can you talk to us about in terms of your research? Whether it's historical research, or if there's sort of a world, it's a unique new world that's created by the story. What's the, what's your angle on research, and when when is it enough before you go into the room?
2: Um, I have a funny one with research because I thoroughly enjoy. it. I thoroughly enjoy it for. I think it's a it's a confidence booster for me more than more, more than anything else. It makes me. I'm a I'm a believer in. I think this is something my dad taught me when I was quite young about being observant and trying to take in as much of the world as possible and trying to be able to handle yourself in any situation. And I feel that comes into research. So I'm interested in, in, in any walk of life, really. I think it's sort of in our nature as actors, isn't it, to have a,
4: mm-hmm.
2: a fascination with human behavior that's current, human behavior that's been before and human behavior for, for the future. And, and yes, whilst some of this behavior is instinctive and will always be there, some of it is down to circumstance a lot of it's down to circumstances and circumstances have changed historically you know look at how rights have changed o- o- over history and how we are we're actually operating in a very different world so I, I thoroughly enjoy research and yes I have done a lot of period pieces and it, it normally gives me a good excuse to go and visit places that I'm um, supposed to be uh, from so uh, that's that's one of my enjoyments of research <laughs> so like Downton Abbey is an excuse to go to Yorkshire for a few days because um, I'm, I'm a big I, I love doing accents for like Trying to throw myself into accents mm-hmm. uh, and my my grandfather was a proud Yorkshireman so yeah for Downton it was I just decided to rent a car and spend a few days driving around the Dales and drinking in various Yorkshire boozes. I mean, a lot of it actually revolves around drinking in certain pubs, in <laughs> certain parts of... <laughs>
4: so, it all comes uh,
2: back to... I'm sitting a thing yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. so, so Outlander, it was a father and son trip to, to the Republic of Ireland, and it involved mm. going to various boozers and <laughs> trying to, trying to, <laughs> trying to uh, integrate myself as an Irishman with some success varying success <laughs>
4: um,
2: <laughs> um, uh, but yeah I think I am fascinated in, in the research element but I think a lot of that whether how much of that comes through when you get into the work I, I'm I don't know I part of me feels for me it might be a safety blanket but I mm. I because it's it's just trying to understand the world it's all gonna it's going to arm you in some way, mm-hmm. but how much does it arm you when you're looking at the scene? How much does it really offer up? Of course, I think where it's really important, I've been quite lucky in a few projects where it's you know beyond the scripts. I've done yeah. things that have come from texts, from, from novels, and I think they're, they're a great source of, of information and, and natural research for the character, for the world. And I think that that's sometimes a very fortunate, and more and more things seem to be um, adaptations now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, there's always a great font of resource there. I did this series Beowulf and I wanted to visit all Iron Age forts, and you know, and you want to learn the skills that may be of note. I mean, it's, it's like at the moment, this thing that I'm supposed to be doing in Scandinavia later in the year, I've been contemplating today. I said to hey, my girlfriend today, I said, well, I might go on a, like a 20th century Scandinavian diet. And I don't know if that's just because I like the idea of eating their food for a few months or or because I think it's going to help me in some way. So the research is is important to me, but I don't know how much once I'm breaking down scenes and looking at text and looking at work, I feel that a lot of that research gets parked at the door once I get to set. It's all there somewhere and there's a residue left over. But I've got to get the text right. I've got to get the understanding of the character right.
0: It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because... Yeah. Actors are often looking for triggers to help them get into character, which can beautifully be found in research. There's pros and cons to it. I think it's just finding things that do help you, launch you, and trigger you. But I think you've got to be careful with it. But like I say, double-edged sword. So I suppose it's how
2: you go about it. One thing I do always try and do, which whether it falls into research or whether it falls into process or maybe it's a bit of both, music's always very important to me. It, It just is in life for me. But And I think all roles that I ever take on, I, aside from doing the work on the text and character and behavior and understanding the human, I do like music. I like, like using music and whether that's music that I feel defines the person or whether that's music from the time that person is. And of course, it's the future. It's slightly different, but there is always music you can find for that. But I, yeah, music's quite a big catalyst for me, I suppose, in, in in, and sometimes it can be a shortcut as well. You know, there's no denying that sometimes little moments from certain songs can be a catalyst for all, all sorts of uh, emotions, good, bad, and indifferent. It's whatever works, isn't it? I think everyone's individual. And I think that some people will take huge, huge positives from from researching everything and wanting to know as much as possible and having Bibles on, on the world they're going to be a part of. And that really, really is beneficial to them. Some people kind of just almost very, basically look at the text, don't even but look at it in a very simple way and kind of just turn up and do it somehow. I don't know, I, I mean, these people drive me mad. <laughs> the people that, it's like the people when you're on set with them and they kind of, they don't need to focus, they don't, and they just can convey all these, this the, the wide ranging emotions. Now, I'm sure great work has been put in in, in the background, but for me, I, if I'm on set, I, I never, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm grumpy or anything like that, but I'm, I'm quite quiet and I'm quite focused, maybe sometimes too far. Because I'm not one that I've learned lessons from switching in and out and not being able to do that so well. So, yeah, I'm always envious of those people who can just turn it on with a click of a, a finger.
3: When they say action, they drop right in.
2: Oh, it's unbelievable. I think Judy oh. Walters and Judy Dench are supposed to be uh, two of the best for that. Like giggling in hysterics and then and then action and then a flood of tears. I don't How? How? I don't know. And there's no sign of onions autistic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, what I'd like to get onto is the house that Jack built, Lars von Trier and Matt Dillon. <laughs> How was that? Spill the beans.
2: So, I mean, Matt Dillon struck me as a man who did a lot of research, incidentally. Uh, he, he wanted to rehearse, uh, you know, my part in that film was a very supporting role. It was one decent scene um, playing this cop. Um, and I got to. I've been I've been in California already, and I was actually supposed to be getting ready to shoot our first short film that we were producing, and I had to divert brilliantly to go to Sweden to go and work with Zendropa Films and Lars and, and his incredible team, and I met Matt, and he was very, very warm straight away, and he was like, look, do you fancy freshening up and then coming down and doing some rehearsals? And I was like, great. I mean, how often does that happen? Like, this a actor, you know, very cool American actor. He's kind of exactly what you imagine to be like. He's just very cool. It's kind of like lazy New York, like draw to him. He's effortlessly cool, annoyingly cool. (laughs) Um, and he, yeah, but he wanted to take the time. Now, of course he wanted to take the time for himself, but it's not just about himself. It was about shaping the scene. And this was before Lars got involved and he just wanted to go through it. And it was just play. And it was, you know, and it wasn't too marked, we didn't sort of mark everything out but we just had a rough idea before we would even got down to the down to the house and uh i had the rest of the evening off and then the following day it was a night shoot so quite a long day to just, we were all staying in this kind of very creepy hotel in the middle of nowhere and i remember just going off for lots of walks and being very nervous because you know last Montreal films are a, a, a treat and growing up on them and, and it's a sort of director I never really imagined I'd be on his radar or being in a film directed by him. That was kind of I still find that odd that I was I was was given that chance. Uh, I got Des Hamilton to thank for that. But I, um, yeah, the the following day we went down to set, and it's such an incredible atmosphere. It doesn't have a huge crew, and I've I've done a couple of jobs in different parts of Scandinavia, and they don't whether it's just for the ones I've been on, but they don't seem to have big crews. It's very quite niche. They're quite, they're in a very tight knit group. And it was an actor's dream because they everyone gathers around and his first AD, who is Nicholas Winding Refn's dad, um, he's kind of like his first AD, kind of directs with him, sort of produces, he, he does all sorts of things. Really another very cool Danish chap. And he gets his A-board piece of paper out and he and he basically gives a rundown of everything we're going to do. And he and he talks it th- all th- through with, with every Cast member, every crew, everyone's there together. And it's a real clear plan. And then we walk around the room and we do a bit of a, a rehearsal, very, very, very light, very light, nothing crazy. And L- Lars just turns around and goes, Right, well, he's got this Danish expression, and forgive me, I can't remember exactly what it is, but he goes, Be messy, make mistakes. It's basically what he says. And he says, I say this before the beginning of each shooting day, we make mistakes, be sloppy. And I don't know the Danish, forgive me. <laughs> and he's, and, and he said, he said, right. So the DOP, who also operates, because Lars used to operate, so the DOP operates. Really, really lovely guy. Um, from South America, I think. Um, really, really lovely guy. And he, um, so basically, Lars says, right, don't do not worry about him at all. He will find you. We're going to do this a number of times. Don't worry. You just do exactly what you got to do, and, and he will work around you. And I was like, oh my god, I and mean, he went, the hell, just anyone ever say that like there's no there's no marks there's no marks you don't need it's like being on the stage i was like great we could just there was there was nothing to worry about and we didn't rehearse but he told me exactly what he wanted me to do He was all like, right i want you to get in that car down there it's like an old 1970s cop car it's down the end of the street i want you to pull up to the first house when you to get out of that house there's going to be an old couple in there who are uh, we won't see them, but they actually live in that house. But I want you to go up to them and, and and sort of ask them questions. We're going to have you on on microphone, so I want to, I want you to hear, hear you asking them questions about any burglaries in the area and basically to stay safe. And then I want you to come back in the car, zoom up, all in time whilst Matt Dillon's playing this this other shot through um, this van. I was like, uh, yeah, okay. I mean, we, we're not going to rehearse. He like, oh, no, 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 no rehearsal, no rehearsal. I thought, like, all right, okay. Uh, <laughs> No, no worries mate so i hop down to, to my number ones, jump in the car get the sirens on i mean loads of fun kids dream that, isn't it? you get to put the put the blue lights on um or red lights in this instance um mm. and you hear action you pull the car up and you do the first bit and then and then you get up and then get back in the car having said having sort of frightened the life out of this slightly unassuming couple in their house um <laughs> i <laughs> trying to make sure that they just mime, which is brilliant. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Scandinavian couple because it's supposed to be set in like 1970s America, but mm-hmm. last one true that th- doesn't fly anywhere. So everything's shot in uh, Norway or Sweden or Denmark. Um, uh, get back in the car, go up to up, up to the uh, to set. Matt Dillon's there, and just right in time for him to get out of the. Uh, for me to knock on the window to get him out of the car and it all worked sort of perfectly and we had to keep doing this and then obviously the scene plays on from there but the great thing about the scene playing on from there was um, exactly as Lars had explained is the DAP just kept popping up all over the place and I could see it in my peripheral vision but it was we was just really allowed to do whatever we wanted <laughs> and we you know we we kind of tore the place apart in there and It was, you could feel the camera coming in close you could feel it going wide mm. it was such a liberating way to work Um and the only time I've worked anything like that was on the only other time I've worked in Sweden, which was with another Danish-Swedish company, which was the Film Zoo, which Gary and I worked on um, a great deal. But I just thought this energy of this guy who's, who's seen so much, been so much, just and it was all very, very easy, very calm. There was no problem. So he gave me one note. Can you get some chewing gum? Not because my breast stank, by the way, just letting you know. It wasn't because of that. It was because... <laughs> He just wanted the detail of chewing gum he said try that and i've had a few <laughs> pals a mate and i went to go and watch it because i was curious to see how the whole film and he was like hey you chewing gum what a great move and i was like yeah 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 i, I thought that'd be good i thought that'd be good i did i
4: did
2: i did i did go on to tell him it was lars von Trier's idea but i thought that was a tiny detail you know again i was mm-hmm. a small very much a supporting role but to to have little little ideas like that i think you know they are they are minute details and they're behavior things i suppose but it's it's it shows someone who's got great uh, attention to detail to be able to offer that up i've been on other big sets where you've been you know maybe slightly more prominent role and people like the character i was playing in 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 the house of jack bill have come on set and you and they don't get the same attention There's no way they don't get the same it's as if every single character he's written, of course, he's written with a, with a, with a purpose, which is how it should be, of course. But it's good to see that actually come to fruition when you are uh, given the chance to perform that. You know, you don't feel like you're just a bit part or a small role, or you just you feel like you're being given proper time and it's a real scene.
4: That's
3: great. I kind of want to know more about your producing. It's not uncommon for actors who have been doing larger productions to start to generate their own work, and especially in these days when generating your own work is so important. So the productions that you produce yourself, Ed, are those growing out of writers that you know, or was it kind of a need to say, well, there's some scripts that are coming my way that I would like to explore as an actor, but I want to take charge of how it's going to be produced? Like, what was the impetus for the production company and what is its aim or its mission?
2: Well, the production company was quite an organic thing, really. Uh, it started because an old friend of mine Barnaby Blackburn and I a long time ago started chatting about making films at some point he worked in advertising for a long time still does but he came to me saying he wanted to move into writing and potentially directing and he, he wrote this short called Forgiveness it was a a really interesting little story I felt that we never ended up making and I, he wanted me to be in it as well as produce it and we got so far in terms of I got a DOP lined up and we, we were getting there and then we just changed tactics. and actually he went on to write something completely different which was Wale which was about a young black lad who had been in a young offenders institute in London and who had been trying to rebuild his life uh, and had retrained as a, as a car mechanic uh, mm. and he is on his sort of first couple of days outside, trying to to get his life going again, uh, and he meets a stranger he feels could be his first customer, and this first customer ends up framing him for something, and, and mm. it's a, it's, a, it's a film about racial exploitation, and so a very different story, and that's that's we went on and we well, Gary worked on it with us uh, with our young lead Raphael Pamatobe and we you know we had great success with that short. Sure. Uh, and then we went on to do another one, that was, which Gary did even more work on with uh, another young, <laughs> young, inexperienced actor. And it sort of has been going from there. I did get into the producing wanting, you know, I have, I don't want to just be producing stories for other people. It doesn't mean that I, I want to be front and center, but I would like to find some vehicles of some description. I think, yeah, as you rightly make point out, Brian, that it seems now that everybody is being encouraged if you're in a position to do so to, to either write or team up with people who can write and and get your own mm-hmm. work out there. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. One of the brilliant things about the current world we live in in terms of uh, media is it's a lot easier to do so. It's a lot easier to go out and go right. Well, you don't need you don't need huge amounts of money. You don't need huge amounts of kit or crew to go out and make something. You no, know? yeah. if you want to start a TV and TV in particular. People have are throwing money at television across the board there are so many outlets and platforms for television it's the right land at the moment for that to happen but with our production company with dark glass films it's very embryonic uh, we've had a couple of good shorts and we yeah we are looking to move into features. Barnaby's writing one at the moment. I'd like to do a bit of writing myself, but I'm, I'm mainly trying to focus on the producing but it, it's not exclusive to necessarily Barnaby always having to write and direct them it, you know we are open to other people if people have got great ideas great scripts we'll open them i think it's it's a collaborative experience we we mm-hmm. we have we have a certain group of people we're we starting to always work with now and i think that will be the main core of our team moving forward but yeah I'm, a, I'm an open book i'm always trying to keep my eyes and ears open because of course i'd love to make my taxi driver but that's not necessarily what i'm looking at it's just yeah, i think it'd be great to start taking a little bit more control and and start exploring what other opportunities might be out there creating them for other people as well you know trying to bring in other up and coming people or even more experienced people who haven't necessarily been given the attention they might have deserved yet and try and engage so it's as i say it is very embryonic and it's been really enjoyable i think what i learned a lot from those two shorts was it was great to be on the other side and see how it all folded together and of course see how it folded together from a, a casting point of view I think Mm. being on the other side and sitting in a room with a director, with a casting director, and going through tapes, and actually realizing that the amount of good quality tapes that come in is is really high for a start. So when you're looking at them, you're not looking at them going, oh, he or she's terrible, and that one's the only one that stands out. Quite often, a lot of people stand out. You You have a certain thing... You're looking for, or or you feel that there's a certain nuance that someone brings that is more in tune with the character. But quite often the, the standard's really high, and I think that mm. that's helped me relax actually as an actor. Rather selfishly, it's made me go, you know, there's. You, you're in there for a reason and, and actually people aren't looking at it going oh that's awful and I think that's one of the things that probably used to beat me up a little bit in my head is like you, you think you, because you haven't got it it's uh you, you must be terrible and it's like the world doesn't yeah. work like that it was just I think we just we carry everything on our where our hearts and our sleeves quite a bit as actors certainly but I feel that yeah that whole process and I enjoy the logistics of it Enjoyed trying to pull people together and and lean on old friends of, of mine within the industry in ways i didn't necessarily expect to i didn't think mm. it's funny with like if even you know, with gary for example i didn't think oh we've got a short film script i'm going to gary but I, at the same time straight away i did i was like well i've got this we got we had two short films that had both leads in that were untapped talent really lovely lovely young lads but they hadn't really done much before so I was like, well, I, I know the perfect remedy for that. Having been through an experience like that myself, let's bring someone in who can who can be a part of that and who can really help and make them see their craft in a different way from an mm-hmm. early age. Um, so I, I, I enjoy that process and I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of it.
3: And it's good for those times between jobs, too.
2: Absolutely. You know, keep,
3: something, Absolutely. keep keep those fires burning.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the shorts, it's not making a living from it in any way. It's keeping the creative embers going, as you say, Brian. Yeah. And it, yeah. you're still meeting people. You're still working on things and you're seeing how other people operate and you're developing ideas. And, and it's amazing. You're, you're not going to not learn something from that from that experience.
1: On the production end, you know, I was looking at at your IMDb list and I don't know, I just had this hunch looking at the the type of films and shows that you've been involved with. I thought, I wonder how many female directors he's worked with. And I started clicking on the episodes of Outlander and it seemed that a good half of them or so were directed by women. And then, uh, yeah. And so I was very curious about, Your experience in that regard, it's still a a struggle. You know, we know the numbers. It's still a struggle for women to be at the helm, although things are changing somewhat. But particularly with that story, what was your experience? Is there any sort of insight you have into that, the the benefits of of having women directors that you experienced yourself?
2: I I think on... Outlander in particular, the sensitivity of some of the storylines that I was having to be a part of, were it was hugely important
4: mm-hmm. to have
2: a female director. And, and actually not just because of the sensitivity of the content, of you know, mm-hmm. the heinous acts that took place and having to shoot certain scenes having to shoot rape scenes. Yes, it was hugely beneficial to have female directors and, there were, and very calm female directors at the helm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: That goes without saying. But actually, when you're playing characters like that, to have a female take on it and the female take on what you may be thinking feeling is it, it just opens up a whole new element of thinking I, I feel i feel that sometimes it could be more nuanced and and i you know i can come into things quite strong-minded and i wouldn't say i'm I don't think I'm a, a necessarily an alpha male or anything, but I, I can sometimes run the risk of being too sort of physical or one-dimensional in, in my thought, and actually having not a, a necessarily a more tender approach, is, it's, it's sometimes a more cerebral approach that I sometimes have experience with female directors. They just turn things in a different way. It's mm-hmm. just a different point of view. It's mm-hmm. just a, a different energy coming in, and mm-hmm. I feel that, in particular with playing Steven, uh, Stephen Bonnet, that was hugely beneficial. Yes. It is improving. It is getting better in terms of the, the, the balance, the equilibrium. However, I think it's got to change further at the top.
4: But mm-hmm.
2: well, that's when the real changes are going to happen. You know, well, let's get the director general of the BBC. Let's have a see- <laughs> two yes. That's where we've got to start shaping up and then yes. that shaking up. And then I think you'll see more and more coming down. But yeah, and actually I'm doubting that we had a lot of, a lot of female directors Yes, as you well. did. Like, that's, that's true. Where I did. And I think, yeah, and on my last episode was with a lovely a lovely lady she was hugely influential because it was quite a mm-hmm. significant moment for that character he sort of went full circle and she was really good at actually harnessing what I was trying to do i mm-hmm. was having a sort of goodbye scene with rob james collier who played thomas barrow yes there was a i think people thought there was something there was a frisson going on between us, which there wasn't. I think people actually misunderstood the storyline. It was always something that he had an interest in me, but my character never responded. But I've actually quite enjoyed the fact that people took from it, that there was a potential for something to happen with these two. But Mm -hmm. anyway, I had this farewell scene. And she, I I think I got a bit too over the top with the emotion. And and she was really good at just harnessing it in and just bring just just a bit more subtlety. And I Mm -hmm. think sometimes, you know, film sets can be, loud, brash places, mm-hmm. and actually, it, we need a bit more them sometimes, and sometimes, especially on TV shows where everything is so fast-paced,
4: mm-hmm.
2: where things can easily, slightly more nuanced moments can get lost. I think it's really important to have female voices at the top, at the helm,
4: mm-hmm. just
2: harnessing everything a little bit more. Where Outland are particularly good, like the producers and the sort of showrunner, lead writers who are always on set, 90% of the time, they are women. Uh, and I think maybe without Outlander because the lead is a lady, so mm. it seems it makes sense to have a lot of female influence.
1: Well, amen.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: really, amen. <laughs> Let's hope it moves in that direction. I, I totally agree with you about the benefits that they can bring, and you see it—you see it in the performance. I remember that that scene that you're speaking of—the goodbye scene. And I remember, if I recall correctly, you sort of came to it with fists clenched and there was just so much non behavior between the two of you. It was really, it was lovely. It was, it was everything that, you know, that's where our full attention is the, how you communicate with each other. It was, it was beautiful. It's subtle, it's specific. And yes, I think a lot of women directors are, are extremely interested in those dynamics and those nuances.
0: Um, having from an early age worked in film and TV up until recently you haven't done any theatre and a couple of years ago now i think it is you ventured mm. into a stage production of the american movie Rain Man mm. Mm. it wasn't dipping your toes in you went from camera work never having done any stage work going to a number one UK theatre tour of a major production um so how was that adjustment and what were the challenges and how did you deal with all that?
2: Well, Gary, it had been something that I'd wanted to do since I started professionally acting, really. I mean, I always feel slightly silly saying this, but I did a lot of stage at school and it was something that that's where my first love of performing and, it, and in turn gave me my love of film at that point as well. So I was always looking for the opportunity and there'd been a few chances that come my way earlier on in my career but they just didn't quite feel like the right thing whether it was fear because some great actors have said to me, you just got to get on with it with theater you know you're not gonna you're not gonna land Hamlet at, at the Don straight away And I was like well that's fair enough but there's a couple of times maybe I should have just jumped in however I didn't and I was trying to hold out for something that I felt was something I could really invest in and to me doing Charlie Babbitt in Rayman was a great opportunity to do exactly that it was a, ch- a huge challenge for me because, yes, I'd, I'd never I'd been on a stage until I was at like 17, and it was a juggernaut of a role. But I, you know, I think Gary knows me well enough to know I like a good challenge. It just felt like the right fit. And I, I know a lot of actors these days don't necessarily want to go and do tours, but I think they're a great thing to do. It's a great way, A, to see the country and see certain cities that I'd never seen, but also just to to see how different audiences responding, that people respond differently in different parts of the country. But from a process point of view, it was just, I am missing doing stage so much, probably more than I'm missing doing TV and film. There was something so enriching from day one, from the rehearsal process, from breaking down the character early on with, with you, from getting into that rehearsal room and and and, and building up the whole show and being there every night i love i love because i as an actor i i'm not very good at when i'm not working I, I i try and find things to keep me busy but i don't like the i sort of feel like i'm cheating people a bit if i've I've done, a, I've in a few episodes, but I've only done a few days here and there. I feel like I've cheated. I feel like, well, I haven't really done that much work. But with theatre, I feel like I'm actually grafting. I mean, you know, you, it's okay, admittedly, some might say, well, it's only technically two hours a day apart from matinees and it's four, you know, that's not really a full day's work, is it? But we all know that the energy required to do it is, is quite something. And I love it. I love being physically on the stage, but I love seeing that journey overnight. I like I like. Does this sound ridiculous? I like the battle with the audience. I like being on there and going, okay, let's 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 see, let's see what you think of this, and and and, and sensing, awesome. oh, it's not quite going where it should be going, and then bringing people back later on, and I, and I I love the the nuance each night can bring, each location can bring, uh, how. Actually, you thought a performance was one thing. Or you thought you had a grasp of a character in one way, but by week six, it sort of become something else. Of course, it's still maintaining this baseline of what you wanted it to be, but it's gone up. It's gone in a different direction. It's, it's changed. it's shifted. Mm. And, and that that live performance and that that freedom to move. You know, I mentioned it with with that on on the last Montreux film. I'd never experienced anything like that. Just suddenly, the liberation of 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 doing sort of anything you wanted on the stage, of course you've got marks, of course you've got to be adhere to what you've laid out with with other actors. But if you've got good actors around you, and know, I was lucky I did, you can bounce off people and, and, and things evolve. And I love that evolution of a play. And, and on a run as long as that, the evolution of the entire run. And I love the camaraderie. I, honestly, the whole process, okay, don't get me wrong, at times I was I, I got a bit knackered here and there, but you know, I relished the whole thing. I, I'm craving to do more. I'm sorry that, so sorry that, Theatre is in a position it's in at the moment because I think audiences, we're craving as humans, we need it, we need it in our lives.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I think with your sports background as well, being a big football player and all the rest of it, it's that. And I know it, it had an effect on me, Is not talking about the, the quality of what I was doing, but just the transition of being in a team. Yeah. Um, that were training toward a goal that was going to be put on in front of an audience for 90 minutes or two hours or however long live, you know, it's very very sort of like a sport. And I think, you know, maybe that's how you talk to it so easily because you're very much into sports and team player and doing things live like that. And there is an, an old hackneyed phrase where they say that, by and large, actors who do theatre Contend to do TV and film and on camera, they can gravitate and change more easily than an actor who's just done film can to the stage. But mm. I think you disprove that.
2: Thank you very much. I think the shackles came off and I feel like I was suddenly given some freedom that I'd been craving. Uh, and actually, I think that's given me more freedom coming back into what I've known. But all it, it's, it's, however, it's, it's left me with this burning desire to do, want to do more theatre. TV and film, if you have a bad day, that's it, that's done. <laughs> that's, that's on celluloid, that's, that's gone wrong. And not that I'm trying to look at things in a negative way, but if you have a bad first act or if you have a bad night, you can go and rectify that the following day. Yeah, okay, the audience that were there the night before won't necessarily see that, but you've got the opportunity to improve and to better. How many times have we walked away from a day's filming, even if actually it turned out to be fine, but you go, oh, God, I should have done, oh, I wish I'd done that. I should mm-hmm. have done this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I missed that. With the theatre, you do that. But the following day, you come out and go, oh, that was a good show tonight. And maybe it wasn't. Maybe actually the audience didn't know <laughs> the one previously was. But <laughs> you can have that, you know, at least you can have that slightly cathartic feeling yourself.
3: <laughs> well, there's also something to going and being able to do the entire arc of the piece. Yes. Which you don't get so much in on-camera work, where you're doing tiny little bits of the arc and hopefully within those bits is contained a smaller arc of the scene but you don't get to go on the full journey every day which you do no, on think, stage which is very fulfilling i think
2: yeah i think you're right and i think you, you you're part of it the whole way through which is yeah yeah, you and actually, it doesn't matter what part you are in the production. It's sort of tying into the team thing still. You're still by being part of that whole performance from beginning to end in any degree. It is much more fulfilling. You know, you can yeah. come in and be do a couple of scenes in something, and yeah, the scenes might go quite well. You may never see the film. Who knows? You you know you might you might want to, but you might not for whatever reason. It might not it might not happen. But you might not get the full thing but yeah just just being a part of that and and seeing it from start to end every and again it comes down to seeing it to start to end every day and every night but that changing as well that's what i used to find so exciting it'd be subtle changes but things would happen yeah big 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 up the theater
0: (laughs) (laughs) great stuff the magic of theater yeah how we miss it right now oh man i hope i hope that it i hope that this situation
3: hasn't killed it
2: yeah it's a bit a big wound, but I think it will come. Fight, it's going to have to come fighting back because people well, I mean, crave it. You, mm, you yeah. think how old it is as a, as a yeah, exactly. as a, that's right, as an art form.
4: That's right.
2: And yeah you know, there may there might unfortunately be some casualties, but hopefully, those casualties can have another way of coming back in another guise in another a form, new, a
3: new rebirth.
2: Mm. Exactly.
3: For our end bit, we usually talk about uh, things that we've have experienced or seen or read in the last week that have moved us or moved our artistry in some way or just been cool um so i don't want to spring that on you ed right away but so maybe uh gary or andrea you guys can jump in with something that you've experienced that's moved you andrea
0: hold on one second
3: my uh microphone gary yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah <sorry>. um <laughs> go ahead <laughs> You can just imagine. I don't know what I I'm just imagining Andrea's got this huge notepad. It's like and she she you know like she's, she's sitting like, in a nest of wires. Yeah, well. It's has got <laughs> this like, you know this, these, these hold these all these books and notepads and things, and she's stacked
3: up them. and it might fall at any moment. Yeah, she's is trying to awesome. pull the paper where her notes are for yeah. what she's seen this week, and yeah. she's yeah. gonna pull it out from the bottom of the stack.
0: She's got these off glasses on the end of her nose, and she's like, Where is that thing? Where is it?
3: You
1: all know me too well. Oh my gosh, I'm going, I am going to publish a picture of what it looks like under here when we're taping.
3: You've been promising that for a
1: minute. <laughs> I do have the picture picture I will post it. I'll post it tomorrow. Okay.
3: <laughs> so, Andre, okay. So, now okay, you have yes? a, What have you a, been up to?
1: I have a book I've been reading and I cannot think of the name of it right now. So, I will come back okay, with so it. So,
0: Gary. Gary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this week I've, uh, you know how I like to revisit certain things, whether it's film directors or playwrights and people that I've forgotten. But um, I got stuck back into um, Joseph Campbell. Oh. Uh, of the power of myth or the hero's journey um, fame. Um, and he's a professor who specialised in comparative um, mythology and comparative religion. Um, and just briefly, his philosophy really is summarised in, in, in the repeated phrase, which you may well know, is follow your bliss. And he gained some recognition with all of his sort of expertise on myths when he worked with George Lucas on Star Wars, the original saga Mm -hmm. Um, because he was always saying that myths have to be reinvented. It's no longer about Little Red Riding Hood walking into a forest. It's we need to reinvent them for today. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was there back in the 70s. So uh, I would just recommend reading his main works, The Power of Myth or The Hero's Journey, because they're great allegorical Mm -hmm. tales, and they really do get to the core of human existence. And I'll just leave you with a quote. He said in The Power of Myth, which is one of his masterworks, that people say that we are all seeking a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on a purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive so Mm. i just love that and i think for actors that is a really good mantra it's not necessarily we're all seeking a meaning for life it's that we are seeking as actors the experience of being alive
1: i love that
0: Cool. very good how can
1: one top joseph campbell oh my goodness
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you can
1: Uh, I don't think it tops Joseph Campbell, but I have been reading a really interesting book called The 5 a.m. Club by Robin Sharma. And I heard a podcast interview with him and I was rather taken with the ideas. And it begins as a parable, really. But I I love it. There's a great deal of philosophy in it. And it's it's geared towards, you know, sort of optimizing your routines for Mm your own success on many levels but it, it, it goes quite deep and um, he talks about sort of the interior empires and he names what he considers the four interior empires we, we speak about mindset in fact we did a whole podcast about it but he also talks about heart set and health set, and then soul set, and the ways that these perspectives—if we bring them and we pay attention to them and cultivate them—the way that it can um, improve our lives, improve our communications and relationships—it's a very inspiring piece. I enjoy. I enjoy the parable aspect of it. Um, it allows me to engage my creative mind as I'm reading it, because it's not set really as a how-to book. It's really it's a what-if
2: book for me.
1: And uh, and I'm enjoying it very much. So I would say check out the
2: Five AM Club. Is he an Australian guy, Andreas?
1: No, I don't think he is. Let me think.
2: Uh,
1: I heard the interview once. No, I believe he's American.
2: Is he American? Because I I think I don't know if the Five AM Club. There's a guy I've actually followed before on social media. I don't. I wonder if it's the same. Must be the same guy.
4: So uh, I I, I I need
2: to, I want to I want to get I want to get his book, but I've I've seen sort of some of the anecdotes because I over the last couple of years started doing little bits of the thing, in particular getting up at five in the morning because I'm yes. very productive time to get up. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm intrigued to get his uh. It may two be very this... very good book recommendations that just come out. Yes,
1: <laughs> uh, it may be yeah. him. For some reason, I'm thinking he had an American accent, but Robin Sharma is the name and. Um, yeah, it's it's very very thought provoking. I'm not naturally a five a.m. person by any means, um, but uh, but I am setting my clock earlier.
0: <laughs> no, you are. It's just when you go to bed. That's not when you get up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and Brian, uh, I'm going to go. Maybe
3: a little bit more cliche or lowbrow, maybe, at this point. So I finished Game of Thrones for the first time this week. And I think the criticisms of the of the later seasons, I, I think it's hard to bring that plane down for a landing. It's su- It was such a huge undertaking, and I think it, it's a hard thing to end mm-hmm. in a way that's going to be satisfying for everyone or anyone. But I just kept watching it and thinking, man... They spent so long in Croatia and in Iceland and in wherever they were shooting. It just I couldn't get over what that experience of shooting <laughs> it must have been like for them. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had, because I've worked with some of those people, and I and I didn't realize I didn't because I hadn't watched it. I didn't realize their involvement and everything. I would have pumped them for more information about what it was like. But yeah, it's just the beast of the production. Was something that really fascinated me watching it, watching the end product, and thinking about how much goes into producing, and how, mm-hmm. how hard that must have been to produce that mm-hmm. that much television and and at that quality, mm-hmm. huge as it gets, isn't it really? Yeah, mm-hmm. really huge. So I just so that's what I that was what I watched. I know everyone else has already watched it. i haven't i haven't i haven't haven't. oh there you go so that's my recommendation (laughs) 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 all of of the listeners have already watched it but there are some really great performances there are some performances that
2: i was like yeah okay it's probably changed the tv landscape over the last Mm -hmm. decade i mean i i know we had i know i know we had sopranos and the wire and you know hbo have obviously been doing fantastic television for years but i feel that the, the production level you're talking about, Brian, is is a complete game changer. It's the reason the scale, why, yeah. yeah, it's exactly. It was like, oh, now everyone's able to do this on this on the small screen, and I think it opened up the door for everybody else. And where we're at now with television, Game of Thrones has got to be one of the, the front runners of that. Certainly.
3: Well, I think I, I don't know what your experience is in terms of the productions that you're on and and talking about this thing, but I know that oh, I've been on maybe two productions who either are compared after the fact to game of thrones yeah. and oh this is trying to be this yeah. production platform's game of thrones or even have gone into it trying to trying to capitalize on that audience and that yeah. and that scale i don't think that the productions uh, well maybe one of them has Something approaching the budget that Game of Thrones had, but certainly the other ones hadn't you know when you're looking at ten million dollars an episode or whatever Game of Thrones was yeah, yeah, wow. that's a lot of money to huge, yeah, huge. to play with, although I'm sure it didn't feel like it to the producers but yeah, I mean I think that I think that in terms of the scale and just. Just the way that, especially these days, people are, you know, the cinema is kind of under threat in a certain sense from people's home theaters or the the television world or just your computer screen, really. But if the content is there and the writing is there, uh, I know that from listening to writers' podcasts, that television really is a writer's medium. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Also, there's something magical about telling serialized stories. And kind of spooling it out week after week or episode after episode, that you don't really get in a movie, which is like one block of storytelling. That there's something compelling to us as viewers when we have that story that we can get engaged in, and we can and we can drop into in that
4: way.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're living in a world where attention spans are diminishing, and yet people are happy. To, I know. Episodes tend to be no more than an hour, but we're happy to sit through te- binge, yeah. binge series. But we struggle watching a film these days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's it's a shame to know independent cinema has obviously taken a big hit. But it's kind of what you mentioned there, Brian, about writers was in tune with what I was saying earlier about people. You know, there are a lot of platforms and outlets that people are willing to give people the chance mm-hmm. because it's easier to make television and, and it's easier to get viewers for it, I suppose. So, um, Right it's a, it's a it's a really rich place to be working at the moment.
0: Yeah. I was told by a fellow director friend I have no idea about this but there's a new platform called Quibi. Yes. Yeah. it's it's
3: uh it's struggling I think.
0: Well they're, they're, I mean people like Christopher Waltz has done stuff on it and you know the they're, they 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 10-minute or 12-minute episodes of a full Yeah,
2: film. It's no more than 10 minutes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's From when I heard it, kind of launched a big fanfare, and they had a lot of big A-listers, and then it kind of didn't hit in the way that they wanted it to. Right. Maybe it, maybe it's just in a lull. But I think I heard someone talking about that on a radio show or something like that.
0: That was that it didn't yeah. quite hit. It's funny because my my director friend he wrote a film about this platform fast food consumer and he's saying that you know the film the, the the language of film and the art of film is dying because of this and you know we mentioned earlier the the, the word content you know um and and the thing is is like he's, he said something funny he said it's no longer with this kind of platform quibi it's no longer fast food it's vending machine products <laughs> ed what about you yeah. have you seen anything? Yeah, ed.
2: Well, I mean, I'm. I'm. I don't know if I can match anything that anyone has come up with this evening. However, I would say what I really did enjoy as a singular performance within within a piece recently was David Tennant playing Dennis Nielsen in uh, this three part drama called Des. I don't know if you've seen it, Gary. It's on uh, ITV Hub. It's I on
3: Netflix here actually it's on Netflix I yet,
2: but uh, well, I I think he is brilliant in it he's outstanding it's it's so understated and the way the it's it's so chilling <laughs> and yet you're kind of laughing at the same time and you know i I, yeah. I knew a little bit about the case having played a couple of nutters recently i i, I played uh, i did quite a lot of research into historic killers and psychopaths and the like and dennis Nielsen was one of the people that came up but yeah his 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 the, the subtlety and yet yeah, there's no there's no sort of big grandiose moments there's nothing you know sometimes that has a place but it's he's just it's just brilliant to watch he's, he's so captivating. you know he's, i suppose it's a perfect role for him and he it's i highly recommend it to any any actor um any director anybody i think it, i think it's a really really great tv performance and, and i says the other thing i've been going back and this is slightly back earlier in lockdown i suppose but i went back and started trying to get back into a few films here and there and i revisited a couple of all favourites. One was uh, Jacques Audiard's Audiard. I think that's how you say it, so then forgive me, uh, Rust and Bone, um, which I, I, for me, I thought was mm-hmm. really, really powerful. A brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece. Just, I mean, I love his cinema anyway. And I think, but a film that I keep saying to everybody, if they haven't seen it, uh, okay. is uh, Victoria. Yeah. Um, the German, as, as everyone... It's I'm assuming, shot in
3: one. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, shot in one. Sebastian Schlipper, Schlipper, Schripper, I think is the director's name. And there's two performances. Uh, Le- Leia Custer, Custer. She's, I think she's Spanish, half Spanish, half... I don't know where else, or she might be fully Spanish. She's from Madrid. She's, she's absolutely incredible in it. I think I might have got this wrong. But I think it's the first thing she ever did. She's, she's just so powerful so present and to have that presence but also the guy who plays opposite her which i think his name is frederick lau um a german actor and yeah. again just just the, the honesty um from both of them and it's 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 when i watched it i've heard good things about it mainly from camera department people um but i i was not expecting it to be what it was and I, so if you haven't seen that film and i think it's Someone told me, it was it was told by a camera operator or DOP that it was, they, they did it three times and they went with the first take. I mean, the, the rehearsal process on it must have been in crazy extensive. I don't know how they would have put, I don't know how they put it together, but it's, it's a real joy to watch from an acting point of view, from a technical point of view, directing, writing, the whole thing. The music is absolutely brilliant. It kind of has this, it's a lot of, um, it's obviously set in Berlin, so there's a, there's a lot of sort of deep house techno, but there's also that wonderful modern composer uh, Niels Fram. I don't know if you have ever listened to any of his uh, scores, any of his, any of his music. Really, really powerful stuff. It's quite, I quite find it quite useful um, when when getting ready for for work. Um, it's a really, it's I think it came out a few years ago now, but I I think it's it's got to be one of my favourite films of the last ten years. It's 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 superb. So if you haven't seen it. I highly recommend watching that
0: great I haven't seen that. I'll get to watch that but
2: yeah I think you're, yeah you'll really be right up your street, gary. I think' definitely fantastic
3: cool so, so Ed, if you want to uh to let people know where they can follow you or if you have an instagram or a Twitter account or something like that that you, that you want to put out there
2: I do have an Instagram and it's at edward j. Spier's surname is s p e l w e r s so yeah it's at Edward J. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's it. I mean, that's how bad I am at promoting myself. Just, I'm pretty sure that might tag. <laughs> <laughs> if, if,
3: if that's not it, just put his name in the search box, and I'm sure, I'm sure it will come up. That's uh, it. I'll so I just it.
1: tagged him this evening. That's it.
3: And Andrea, where can where can people get in touch with you if they want to get um, in touch with you?
1: On Instagram, I'm at Andrea Helene Three, and Twitter Andrea underscore Helene.
0: All right. And Gary? Yes. Uh, at Gary Condes on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, but you're better off going to my, um, website and, uh, getting on my contact page at GaryCondes.com and send me an email. And if,
3: uh, you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me on Facebook as well. And you can find Vagabond Actors podcast on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. You can leave comments on that, or you can ask questions. Uh, You can also find Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what's on your mind. If you have any issues or questions, that you want us to discuss we'd love to uh get some topic ideas we have our own but we love hearing from our listeners and other than that i think that should be good night from us thank you so much for joining us thank you ed for giving so much of your time and and so much of your wonderful insights into the process and 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 your career i I really appreciate it
2: yeah thank you very much for having me thank you Uh, no it's been a real 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 pleasure and um for
3: us as well and from all of us here at Vagabond Actors uh, we hope you stay safe and have a great week thanks, thanks folks thanks everybody bye bye, bye.